Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to Mark's Gospel, we are getting back into our study of the Gospel according to Mark. We are in chapter 12, almost at the end of that chapter. Our sermon text this morning is a, is a short one. It's Mark 12, verses 35 to, to 37. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed on the back side of your bulletin as well. And I'll ask if you're able to do so that you stand for the reading of God's holy word today. Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word. Mark writes, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand and I, until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask God's blessing uh, to us on his word today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us the scriptures that we might know you rightly through the gospel there, the, the gospel you revealed uh, about your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would teach us your word this morning, that you would work in us by your spirit and give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, uh, about a month and a half ago, I think it was now, if you remember, Dr. Gary Cass was here, uh, and he preached on Psalm 110, uh, the very verse that Jesus quotes here in our, in our text today. And he spoke of, I believe the title of his sermon was God's Favorite Bible Verse. And if you remember why he called it that, it's because it's the most quoted, I always struggle how to, how to put this right, it's the most quoted Old Testament text in all of the New Testament. More of the writers of the New Testament, including Jesus' words here, quote this one psalm and this one verse from that short psalm uh, throughout uh, different places in the New Testament. So when, you know, when the Bible repeats something, it should grab our attention. Last week, our sermon text, Psalm 53, was a repetition of an earlier psalm for the most part. Psalm 53, we saw, was just about word for word, not quite, a repetition of Psalm 14. And so when God... Repeat something, it must be awfully important. And the fact that the New Testament quotes this text, Psalm 110, so many times should get our attention. And the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ himself quotes it here in the, in the, the Gospels should also cause us to pay very careful attention to what he's teaching us through it uh, here and what it has to say about himself. Because that's what Jesus is doing here. He's quoting Psalm 110 and saying, this isn't about someone. This is about me. And here's what it says about me. The very thing that many refuse to acknowledge and believe. Now, these aren't going to be the points of our sermon, but I thought it might be worth noting that this little six-verse psalm teaches what may be, uh, it, you might consider these things the three biggest, deepest mysteries, the things that are hardest for us to understand in all of Scripture. And the first of those, not in any particular order, is the inspiration of scripture. Jesus, in this very brief text, gives us, in a nutshell, a, a, a glimpse of what inspiration is. How, how did the scriptures come to be? Because what does he say there? How did David write Psalm 110? It says, David, in the spirit, David himself, in the spirit, said what he wrote there in Psalm 110. The Apostle Peter says much the same thing in 2 Peter 1.21 where he also, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says the following. He says, 
Second Peter 1.21, he says, No prophecy, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God. How? As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a boating imagery. You know, the, the wind and, and the, the, the tide carries the boat along. That's how scripture was written. God used men. Who did the speaking or the writing? God spoke through men. He used them as his instrument. Well, here in our text, we see that Jesus, the Lord Christ, believed in the inspiration, inerrancy, and authority of the scriptures. And how do you know that? He not only says that David spoke you know, in the spirit or wrote in the spirit, what does Jesus base his, his, his teaching on? What, what authority does he expect his hearers to accept as, as authoritative? The scriptures, the Psalms, the Psalm of David here. The second thing taught in this little three-verse text is the doctrine of the Trinity. Maybe as you were reading it, maybe that jumped off the page at you, maybe it didn't. A lot of times those things, we just kind of read right past them and don't think much, much about them. But here you have Jesus speaking of God the Holy Spirit. That David spoke in or by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not some kind of impersonal force that we tap into, as some people seem to think. The Holy Spirit is God the Spirit. And not only that, but what does the psalm itself say? The Lord says to my Lord, he's talking about two divine persons there. As we're going to see later on in our text, we have God the Father speaking to God the Son. When David wrote, as we're going to see, that the Lord, that is Yahweh, speaking to David's Lord, Adonai, in Psalm 110.1. We're showed kind of a conversation of sorts between members of the Trinity, the Father and the Son, the Father, God the Father tells Christ, his Son incarnate, to sit at his right hand until he puts his enemies under his feet. So you have the Trinity spoken of here in these three short verses. And what's the last one? Again, it might not hit you over the head, but the, the incarnation of Christ, the Son of God, is also taught and implied here as well. In a lot of ways, the divinity of Christ, that he is... Uh, God and man in, in one person is the primary point of the entire passage. It's what Jesus is trying to get across to his hearers, both the scribes and everyone else listening to him in the temple at the time of this teaching. That's the main thing he was trying to teach, is that the son of David, uh, that, that in speaking of the son of David, he's also the son of whom? The son of David was to be the son of God himself and not just a human king. Jesus Christ tells us that Psalm 110 has the Christ or the Messiah in view. It is a messianic psalm about the divine king. Well, the inescapable conclusion that Jesus draws about himself here is that while Christ was certainly to be the son of David, he was, as Paul says, descended from David according to the flesh in Romans 1.3, that he was to be much more than that as well. He was to be the son of God incarnate. Jesus, the Christ, or the Messiah, was as the hymn says, David's son, yet David's Lord. We sing that when we sing stricken, smitten, and afflicted. David's son, yet David's Lord. That's what Psalm 110 teaches. And King David himself confesses that through the Holy Spirit here in Psalm 110 that Jesus quotes. Well, the first thing in our text that Jesus brings to our attention is the unbelieving Jewish religious leaders. Uh, you know, what, what's happening here? If you've followed along, if you, maybe you haven't been here, some of you, but through the last chapter and a half or so, what we found is different religious leaders, unbelieving ones, coming to Jesus trying to trap him, trying to trick him into, into, into a trap, uh, trapping him by his words, getting him in trouble. 
they're, they're not just doing this to show off. They're not just doing this to make themselves look good and to make him look bad. They're hoping to make him really step in it to the point where he gets himself possibly even executed for blasphemy or for speaking against the Roman government. Well, each case, each different group of people comes and tries to test him, and each, each time they fail miserably. Jesus confounds them with his answers. He doesn't duck their questions. He answers them and, and confounds them sometimes, as he often did. He answered a question with another question, which they either refused to answer or couldn't, couldn't answer. Well, at the end in the, in, of the previous passage, in verse 34, it says this, After that, after he answered their last question, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. They finally realized they were up against somebody much greater than they realized, that they were, they were dealing with somebody greater than Solomon. They, they, they weren't the smartest one in the room. You ever notice somebody that thinks they're the smartest one in the room? Uh, you know, sometimes we're all guilty of that kind of a thing. Well, these people thought they were the smartest ones in the room, and then they met Jesus. And they realized they had nothing on Jesus, and they, they, couldn't hope, they couldn't hope to trip him in his words. And so they finally gave up. But what do we see in our text? Jesus isn't done yet. Whose turn is it now to ask the question? It's Jesus' turn. He's turning the tables on them in more ways than one. So he has a question for them. In fact, in the parallel passage in, Mark 20, in Matthew rather 22, it says that Jesus here asked the question directly to the Pharisees. So he's got them still in his sights. They're still in his presence. So he has a question for them. And in asking this question, what is he doing? He's exposing their unbelief in front of everyone. Certainly not something that's going to be uh, tending to keep him uh, safe or to keep him out of trouble. He exposes their unbelief. He exposes the shortcoming of their understanding about the one, really one of the most important truths in all of Scripture. And if you were, if you were a scribe or a Pharisee or a Sadducee, you know, every pastor gets things wrong. Myself certainly included among that. We're all learning. I'm still learning. You know, 30 years I've been studying, and I'm, the more I study, the more I realize I don't know. You know, um, but there's some things you have to get right. There's some things that there's no excuse not to get right. I mean, you can't. And if to get these things wrong is to get everything wrong. You can know a lot about the Bible, but if you get the gospel wrong, it's disastrous. It's it's not something you can you can tolerate. Well, what's the one thing they had to know? Maybe the most important thing the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and whatnot had to know and had to understand and get right and teach right was the identity of the Messiah, the identity of, of the Christ. William Hendrickson calls this the most important question of all, the question about the identity of, of the Christ, of the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer, God's King. And I think Hendrickson is right, isn't he? Is there any more important question that you can have the answer to, the correct answer to, than who Jesus really is and who the Christ is? Is what, what is your, think about this this morning, it's easy to, to kind of hold these things at arm's length and say, okay, the scribes thought this. What's your view of Jesus? You ever thought about that? What, who do you think Jesus is? How do, you, how do you view him? Do you share the same view of Christ that the scribes who are mentioned here in this text had? That may seem like a safe question. That may seem like an easy question to say, well, of course not, Pastor. How could I possibly? The scribes were the bad guys. How could I possibly think the same way that they did about Jesus Christ? Is your view of Christ 
The same that is taught here by Jesus Christ himself, as well as King David in Psalm 110, as well as the rest of Scripture. What was the scribes' view of Christ? How did they view the Messiah? Verse 35, Jesus tells us. It says, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say, that's what they, what they taught, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, when you read that, maybe you thought that seems like an odd thing for Jesus to say. Was the, is Jesus saying that the Messiah, which is himself, wasn't the son of David? Is that what he's saying here? Is he contradicting you know, Psalms and other parts of Scripture? Is he contradicting God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7? No, he certainly isn't, isn't doing that. It's, nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus here is not saying you know, anything contrary to God's covenant with David. Back in 2 Samuel 7, we looked at this over Christmas time, We sometimes call that the Davidic covenant. That's God's covenant promise to King David. What did God promise David in 2 Samuel 7? He promised David, the king, that he was going to raise up his offspring or his seed after him, that he was going to establish the kingdom of that offspring, of that, of that son. Uh, and he was also going to, quote, verse 13, establish the throne of his kingdom, how long? Forever. David was promised, literally, in 2 Samuel 7, that one of his descendants, of whom Jesus was, that, that that king's reign was going to last forever. Now, it's very easy for us sometimes to read those things as kind of exaggerations for effect, but that's not what it was. He says, you're going to, you know, he, of course he had a line of descendants that reigned from Jerusalem, but he's saying, you're going to have a son, an offspring, a seed, whose, whose throne is going to be forever. That wasn't true of Solomon or any other human king uh, before the days of Christ. He told him in 2 Samuel 7 also something else that, that the scribes should have picked up on. He said that God said that he would be a father to this messianic king. And that king would be what? A son to him. The king would be the son of God. We saw that in, in Isaiah chapter, chapter 7, didn't we? In chapter 9, that the, that the king that was to come, this child that was given to us, was going to be called Almighty Father, Prince of Peace, Everlasting God. It's all through the Old Testament that the Savior was going to be God himself, the Son of God in the flesh. Well, you could say that the scribes' view of Christ was half right. Right? Half right. And what do they say? Half truths are really no truths at all. They're all wrong. They had a half right view of Christ, but being half right was to be completely wrong. And what is the view that they thought? They acknowledged that, that the Christ was going to be the son of David. What they didn't acknowledge was that this king was going to be the son of God as well. And therein lies, lies the problem. They basically taught that the long-awaited Christ or Messiah, the king that was to come, was nothing but an exalted man, not much different than David himself that he would be a merely human king who would come and deliver Israel from the domination of Rome and bring back the glory days of earthly Israel. That's, that's what they thought. The salvation they looked forward to was an earthly salvation and nothing more, nothing much more. The king that was to come, their redeemer that they looked forward to was nothing much more than a human king who would come in might and glory and, and redeem them, rescue them from their earthly oppressors. You know, that's, 
When you put it that way, if you think about it, that's not much different than the way many liberals view Christ today. Many people who have a veneer of Christianity, but they really don't have faith in the biblical Christ. They want a Jesus who makes their earthly life comfortable. They might, they might acknowledge him as something more than human, but they really don't see him as the conquering king, the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What about you? Do you have similar thoughts about Jesus Christ this morning? You know, many in our day share similar views to the, to the scribes here. They have short-sighted and wholly inadequate views of Christ. How many hold in our day even that Jesus was, quote, a good uh, a good moral teacher. There are many, many people that you know, maybe yourself, but uh, many others for sure, that will, that will acknowledge, if you talk to them, that yes, Jesus was a good man. Jesus was a good moral teacher, a good, maybe a good life coach, to use the terms that we use today. And yet, what, do they accept his divinity? Do they say that he is God? No, that he's God in the flesh. Certainly not. They basically hold him, many, many do, to be kind of the founder of the Christian religion and not much more. As if he were the first Christian and not much more than that. Now, if that's all he is, if Jesus is just, is just a good moral teacher, one among many, the founder of a very important religion, uh, you know, you can feel free to pick and choose what to believe from his teachings, can't you? In fact, many churches in our day are doing exactly that which shows what their real view of Jesus really is. Many in the visible church, are, they seem to feel free to reject and renounce part of his, even his, quote, good moral teachings. Now, it used to be that the liberal churches just rejected the theology of the Bible. Now they, they can't even keep that, so they, they, they're even rejecting the good moral teachings of their good moral teacher, so-called, uh, that they, they hold Jesus Christ to be. Anything that doesn't fit with their own pet sins, they seem to feel free to reject or redefine. Anything that Jesus taught, especially his good moral, good moral teachings that society around us or the world around us finds unpopular or distasteful seems to get rejected and cast by the wayside. If you think of Jesus as nothing but a good moral teacher or as one good religious leader among many, the world will leave you alone. If, if, if the Jesus you believe in is is the go-along, get-along Jesus who you know, is just one road among many and doesn't really require every tongue to confess and every knee to bow, uh, the world's going to leave you alone. Confess him as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and the world, as we saw uh, even from Christians' uh, prayer this morning in China and other places like that, uh, will, not, will not go along and get along with the church of Jesus Christ on this earth. You know, do, that, do that and you can be friends. You, know, you can get along with the world. What is... What does the scripture say? It says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can, there's only one Lord, one King of Kings that we have to follow. And his, uh, maybe you've read this book, Mere Christianity, by C.S. Lewis. It's probably the quote that sticks out to me more than anything he's ever written. Uh, in Mere Christianity, he writes the following. He says, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man uh, who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, 
or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The good moral teacher thing doesn't fit with Jesus' own words in a lot of ways and for a lot of reasons. C.S. Lewis there, I think, is very much right. Look at Jesus' actual teachings. Even here in our text, what he taught about himself, what he taught about his own identity, his work in saving sinners that he came to accomplish, including his death and resurrection on the third day, uh, his authority over all things in heaven and on earth. In the Great Commission, it's what he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Look at the way he tells sinners everywhere that he is the only way to salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life. John 14, 6, Jesus himself says this, I am the way that, and the truth and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through what? Me. He's not going along and getting along, is he? He's not accepting the one road, you know, one way among many. He, he didn't just say that he knows the way. That's what a prophet would have done. That's what your pastor might do. I know the way. Jesus is the way. He doesn't just say that he knows the way. He says he himself what? Is the way. He didn't just say that he knows and teaches the truth. That would be good enough for many. Many would be okay with that. He says he is the truth. No prophet would ever have said that. No prophet would have dared to say that. He didn't just say that he knows about life or the way to life, but that he himself is the life. And lastly, as if that were not enough, in case we didn't get the point, he says that to you and me that no one comes to God the Father except through him. He's the way. He is the door uh, of, of the sheep that the sheep must enter in through. Does, it, does that sound like somebody who's merely claiming to be a good moral teacher? Good moral teachers don't say, I'm it. I'm the only way. I'm, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So to use Lewis's words, let's not come to him with any patronizing nonsense. Let's, let's come to him by faith that we might have life in his name and fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, as Lewis said. So I ask you this morning, have you come to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith to have life in his name? Are you saved from your sins? Not that Jesus clean you up a little bit. Are you saved? He came to save his people from our sins. He came to bring us forgiveness and reconciliation and life in his name. Well, the second thing we see in our text is not just the scribe's wrong view of, of Christ, but we see uh, David's view. How did King David himself and Christ himself view the Christ? What was David's view of his promised offspring that God had promised to give him who would reign after him and whose reign God would establish forever. Verses 36 to 37, Mark writes this, that the Lord said this. Jesus, David, he says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declare, and he quotes Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? How is he his son? Now he's quoting again Psalm 110.1. And in Psalm 110.1, David, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was prophesying of the Christ who was to come, the Messiah. Now, in the Greek language that our New Testament books were written in, uh, both, both of the words that are Lord there, the Lord said to my Lord, are the same word. Uh, the Greek word for Lord, the most common word is kurios, 
not curious, kurios is the word for Lord, and it's there twice. I believe the, the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses that same, those same words. But in the original Hebrew of Psalm 110, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different. The words uh, there for, for Lord are two different words, and both words are names for God. In, he, in Psalm 110.1 in the Hebrew, both, both lords there, those are both names for God himself. God himself. If you were to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 110.1, you should probably notice that the very first word Lord in Psalm 110.1, that all four letters are capitalized. That's L-O-R-D. All four letters are in capital letters. Now, you know, in our day, if you're emailing people and you have your all caps button on, people say it looks like you're yelling. That's not why the word Lord is all capitals, although it doesn't hurt to emphasize it. The word Lord being in all capitals is an indication that the Hebrew word there is Yahweh. When you see in your, in your Bibles, most of them have this, all four letters capitalized. That means it's, trans, it's a translation of the word Yahweh, which you don't have in Greek, so the New Testament didn't have that part in there. But in Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, that first Lord is Yahweh, the covenant name for God. Now, what about the second one? The second word, Lord, with, the, with the, the uppercase L and the rest of it lowercase, in this particular instance, that is the translation of the Hebrew word for God that is Adonai. Both those names are names for God in the Hebrew language. So think about that when you read Psalm 110.1. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies or make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So what was David, King David's view of the Christ that was to come? What was King David's view of his future son? What did he know way back when he wrote the Psalms? We sometimes don't give the Old Testament saints much credit. We, we think, oh, they didn't possibly understand half this stuff. They understand a lot more than we give them credit for. David knew by the work of the Spirit within him that his future son, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, was going to be God, the Son of God, Himself, in Psalm 110.1, in David's words, there are two divine persons in view having this discussion. David, way back in the Old Testament, way back in the Psalms, taught that the Christ, the Messianic Son of David, the Savior of sinners, was going to be the Son of God in the flesh. That was taught in the Psalms. In other words, King David knew and confessed that his offspring or son would be also his Lord. And isn't that what Jesus says in verse 37? He points out, David himself calls him what? His Lord. Not just Lord, you know, as, as we think of medieval times, you know, a king, oh, my Lord. No, he called him his Lord. The king, King David, God's anointed king, called this particular king his Lord as well. Now, for a father to call his merely human son Lord, even Adonai or God, would be unthinkable. It would be blasphemy, wouldn't it, if it weren't true? Certainly David would not do that. But God revealed to David that his future offspring who was to come was going to be his Savior and his Lord. And what else did David by the Holy Spirit foretell about the Christ that was to come? He tells us here in this verse that he would sit not just on a throne, not just in a throne in a palace in the earthly city of Jerusalem, but that God the Father himself would say to him, sit where? At my right hand, at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The Christ 
the king that was to come, his throne wasn't going to be on earth. His throne was going to be at the right hand of God the Father. And that's where Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is reigning over all things now. Now, not later, not some future date when he comes back. He's reigning now. That's why Paul can say in Philippians 2, 9 to 11, he says, Therefore, God has, exalt, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. So that the name, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even now, God the Father is making all of Christ's enemies a footstool for his feet. It's a picture of conquering. Again, the, the unbelieving Jewish religious leaders, their view of Christ wasn't too big. I, th I think sometimes we, we get the, impre the wrong impression that that's what the problem was. They expected an earthly king to conquer, you know, overthrow Rome and get him out of, out of Israel. That's not too big a view of Christ. That's too small a view of Christ. To have Jesus reigning in Jerusalem on a throne like David did is a far too small view of Christ and his kingdom. But God is making his enemies a footstool for his feet. He is conquering Christ's enemies even now, and he has been ever since Christ ascended to his right hand. How is he doing that? How is, how is the Father making Christ's enemies now a footstool for his feet? Not by sword or spear or any earthly weapon or army, but by the word of God going forth in the gospel. This is his weapon. And, you know, we read Genesis 1. This morning, as our scripture reading, and what happened every time God said something? Stuff happened. Let there be light. Bang, there's light. God's word is powerful. The gospel, is, Paul says, is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. The Lord conquers by his powerful word and the spirit working through it. He's making disciples of all the nations right now through his word, through his church, through his spirit working through the word. Many are conquered by his grace. And power in the gospel, many others reject Christ and die in their sins and are conquered by his judgments, both in this life and in the final judgment of, of the living and the dead on that last day when Christ returns. Either way, make no mistake about it, about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the very Son of God incarnate. He is ruling over all things even now. Resistance, as they say, is futile. And salvation is only to be found in him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. The, the most raging atheist you'll ever meet, the most wicked ruler on this earth who persecutes Christ's Christ church, one day will bow the knee to Jesus Christ and confess that he is Lord of all. Everyone will bow the knee one day, and we hope that, that everyone here in this room bows the knee in faith to Jesus Christ for salvation. Well, the last thing that Mark tells us in this short passage is verse 37 it's easy to kind of gloss over it and not think about it. But it says, And the great throng, the crowd, heard him gladly. So, you know, on a human level, you know, if you're, if you're a regular, you know, Joe Schmo like most of us are, if you were, if you were there in the temple on that day and Jesus is making the, the scribes look silly, you're probably getting a chuckle out of that. You're probably sitting there going, you know, elbowing somebody and, you know, look, look, at, what, look at these guys squirm. They can't even say anything. They're afraid to talk back to him now because he's made them look so bad. And Jesus kind of seems like he's piling on here. Oh, that's not really his, what he's doing. Now, hearing him gladly, that's a, a much more commendable thing than most of the people that have heard him before this. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all these people 
Uh, they came, they asked him questions politely, but they were you know, smiling through gritted teeth. They were bearing their, their fangs. But the, the crowd wasn't hostile to him in his teaching. They were hearing him gladly. But hearing the words of Christ gladly is a good start. right? It's better than not hearing it at all. It's better than many do in our day who seem to care less about the preaching of God's word on the Lord's day. But hearing his words without coming to him by faith is not enough, is it? Hearing the word of God isn't nearly enough. Many commentators have pointed out that, you know, back in Mark chapter 6, when we, we heard the story of the martyrdom of John the Baptist, listen to what Mark says about King Herod, who had John imprisoned. It says that he, he has him in prison, he has him under guard, under threat of death. It says that, that, that Herod, quote, feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. Mark 6.20. Think about that. King Herod. You know, he's Mr. Powerful. I'm, I'm in charge here. I'm such in charge. I'm so in charge. I can have John imprisoned. I can have him put to death whenever I want. That's how much authority he had. He was afraid of John. John's in chains. Herod, somehow Herod just still knew that this was wrong. He knew and feared John as a holy and righteous man. But what else did he do? He still listened to John. I don't know how it looked. I don't know if he brought him up to his chamber and, you know, like a like a dancing monkey or something and had him preach anyway and then sent him away and, and shrugged his shoulders. But it says it says there in, in Mark six twenty seven that when he heard John, which means he heard him on an ongoing basis, he was greatly perplexed. And here it is. And yet he heard him gladly. Herod heard John's preaching gladly. Did Herod believe? No. In fact, Herod had John beheaded. He felt bad about it, right? He had John the Baptist beheaded. But he heard him gladly. He enjoyed his sermons, apparently, even though his sermons sometimes were about his own immoral lifestyle. He rebuked the king for his adultery. So I say on the basis of that, never settle for enjoying sermons. I'm not going to say, I, you know, I never take it as an insult when somebody says, I really enjoyed that sermon, but never settle for enjoying a sermon. In fact, in some ways, it's not really the point at all, is it? Enjoying sermons is not the main point. Listen to them with your Bible open. Attend, attend the worship of the Lord and the preaching of his holy word on a regular basis. Don't neglect it, as Hebrew says, as is the habit of some, Hebrews 10.25. But don't content yourself with hearing the word of God only, and so deceive yourselves, as James says in James 1.22. Never settle for enjoying sermons. Turn from your sins. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. It's only in coming to Christ that sinners are justified in the presence of a holy God, having your, your sins freely forgiven, all of your sins, having the sure hope of eternal life in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this brief passage that, uh, among many, that tells us plainly, even from the Old Testament, about your Son being the, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior and Redeemer of sinners, that he really is the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, we, we give you praise and thanks that, that you sent him, your only begotten Son, the Son you love, and you, you loved sinners, rebels enough like us, that you would send him to die in our place 
and that he willingly laid down his life for our sins, the Lord of glory, allowing himself to be nailed to a cross for my sins and the sins of many. We give you praise uh, that we, we don't deserve anything remotely like that. We deserve hell and condemnation and death, and yet you loved the unlovely enough to send your son to do that. And we give you praise that you have exalted him now, even to your right hand, and that you're making the nations uh, his disciples, that you are making his enemies a footstool for his feet. We pray that you would, uh, we ask that you would continue to glorify his name in doing just that, that you would help us to willingly, by faith, confess and bow the knee to Christ every day of our lives, that we would worship him and serve and love him. And we pray that you would make uh, make disciples here in Ramona, both uh, through our own witness as well as those of others, the churches that hold to your word in, in sincerity and truth. We pray that you would make many disciples here among us, that you would use us as, as salt and light and bring many to saving faith in Christ. We do pray that if there's anyone in this room that does not yet know you, that has as of yet held Christ uh, out at arm's length as if he was just a great moral teacher, but not yet bowed the knee to him and confessed him as the Lord of glory, the King of kings and Lord of lords and the Savior of sinners, that you would open their eyes, give them grace to see their sin for what it is, see their need for Christ, and they might look to him by faith and have life in his name, that you might receive all the glory for what you do. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.